theyeshiva.net. I want to thank the shul for providing security here uh, for the class, which will, Bezer uh, Hashem, continue every week. I know there's a lot on everybody's minds and hearts this uh, loaded week in Muncie. And uh, a, uh, I went last night to participate in the tish of uh, Rabbi Rottenberg in his home in honor of Zeus Hanukkah, the same home which was attacked uh, just uh, two nights earlier. So he made a, uh, as he does every year, I guess, a gathering for Zeus Hanukkah with uh, a lot of his students and congregants of the shul. And uh, it was just incredible to see, you know, the spirit of the Jewish people, the sense of defiance and the ability to sing and dance and celebrate in the literally the very same uh, room where uh, such horror and bloodshed and hatred has been unleashed two nights earlier. So, uh, you know, we always must fight our enemies on many fronts. Obviously on the physical front, in terms of self-defense, and security, and aggression when needed. And of course also on the emotional and psychological and spiritual front. And by the Jewish people, the two always work hand in hand. But there's no question that on a physical level, we have to do what we have to do in terms of security and training people and Jews defending themselves according to the law in all possible ways. And uh, that's just a sad reality of a new America, which I think many of us growing up in this country didn't think we would uh, experience in our lifetime. Uh in Brooklyn, I think there were eight attacks during Hanukkah. And uh, a lot of the politicians who speak are just doing lip service, as you can probably see, saying the right things, the nice things, but uh, very rarely do you see anybody's genuine uh, outcry in terms of the press as well. They cover it, but they cover it very mildly. You would think such an event would uh, create a lot of commotion in the media with analysis of what's happening, why it's happening, how it's happening, who's responsible for it. But actually it's, uh, I assume, oh, thank you, thank you. It's... Uh, it's it's dumbed down. It's uh, it's covered, but you know, very uh, a very uh, parav and uh, not alarming fashion, which is extremely worry, extremely worrisome and disturbing. And uh, simply on a practical level, it just means that the Jewish people really have to unite and galvanize our courage our resolve, our strength, both on a spiritual level, on an emotional level, and also on a physical level. Every aggressor must know that they will be met with extraordinary resistance and aggression 
if they attack a Jew in the street or anywhere else. And for this, I think we have to go through a certain uh, paradigm shift in our own minds, which we're not used to. But uh, the Jew has to be a warrior, a spiritual warrior, and sometimes a physical warrior. So that's a fraction of my thoughts on this uh, wonderful uh, rainy Tuesday morning, a day after Hanukkah, Tavshin Pei. But I am thankful that the shul provided here security. And uh, outside, you probably saw our fine uh, gentleman, because I got a few emails from people. But even without the emails, it was obviously the right thing to do. And it's unfortunate, I think, every shul, every class, every organization, and certainly every school, every Jewish school, needs intense security inside and outside. And may Hashem protect all of you and all of us and all of our people here, here in Muncie, in America, in Israel, and the whole world. Hashem Yishmar Oilam. The Jew who was critically wounded, Matzai Shabbos, is a friend of mine. Uh, I knew him very well. I know him very well. Rabbi Yosef, uh, Rabbi Yossel Naiman. Uh, Rabbi Yossel Naiman is a very interesting character, quite a character. Great, great schmoozer. A uh, timeless pillar in Rabbi Rattenberg's shul here on Forche, just down the block. <coughs> and a uh, very interesting personality. Belongs to a lot of different worlds. And he was uh, critically wounded. So I do want to begin the class and dedicate it to him and his recovery. Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef ben Peril, for Rufur Shleim and Rufur Kreva, Marichis Yom and Vashanam Toivas, together with his family, and all of those who were wounded in the attack. But he was the most uh, critical and remains in uh, Westchester in the hospital. We wish him a complete and speedy recovery. And as I told, uh, as I blessed Rabbi Rottenberg, Shlita, the, the rabbi and the rebbe of that shul, that uh, from this experience should be Yisrin Ha'er Men HaChayshech, which means to be even, should be even a greater explosion of light in his community, in our communities, and in his shul, and in his work, and in all of our work, from the darkness, and that uh, the darkness should only unleash and be transformed into an extraordinary explosion of more light and more blessings and more resolve and more unity and more oneness. And for all the wounded who were wounded, I refer Shlema to them, including for all those who were uh, emotionally quite traumatized by the event as it was in a private home with women and children and grandchildren and and sons and daughters who all witnessed uh, the horror. It's not something uh, that somebody ever wants to see in their own private home during a Malava Malka and a Tish and a Hanukkah for bringing after candle lighting. So uh, we wish them and everybody here I know who was who went through a difficult week emotionally to be able to uh, have all the strength and resolve that you need and all of us need to do what we have to do and to uh, embrace <laughs> this moment in history with great resolve, courage, strength, 
and dignity. And may Hashem uh, protect all of the Jewish people and all innocent people. May Atov Ad Ailam. Amen. Thank you for listening. So, I'm going to explore today, Be'ezer Hashem, a, um, what is really the longest speech, the longest speech that's given in the entire Sefer Bereshus. Sefer Bereshus is filled with speeches. What do I mean speeches? It's filled with conversations. There's always somebody saying something to somebody else and responding. Besides actions, there are many words and exchanges. But usually a conversation in Torah lasts for one pasuk or a half a pasuk. If it's a long conversation, it lasts for two pasukim. If it's a really long conversation, it lasts for three pasukim. Some reason Jewish speakers did not use this as a template of how to construct speeches. Uh, the most monumental experience in Jewish history is Matan Torah, Maimed Har Sinai. And how long did it last for, you think? How long does it take to say the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Adibris? Just a few minutes. The longest speech in Sefer Bereshus is the opening of Parshas Vayigash. And it continues for 17 verses which is unprecedented, that somebody should speak straight for seven. Now, it doesn't take so long. It's just a few minutes. But the fact that it's written in 17 psukim is unprecedented in the entire Sefer Bereshus. There's no one person communicating with such and such, such communicating, such a long presentation, giving such a long, elaborate sermon, and it's this presentation that is presented by Yehuda, speaking to the Prime Minister of Egypt, to a person he knows to be the Prime Minister of Egypt, does not know at this point, of course, that he's speaking to his own baby brother, Yosef Hatzadak. Whenever the Torah gives such a long recorded conversation, such a long recorded speech, one wonders what's the purpose of such elaboration, of such an arichis, of such unprecedented precedented length. If you look at the words, it starts off, Vayigash, I love Yehuda. Yehuda approached him. The context of the story we probably all remember, Yosef has been sold by his brothers, actually by Yehuda, who's the one who suggested to take him out of a pit, a well, and sell him as a slave. He ended up as a slave in Egypt in the house of Potiphar. He did very well there. He was promoted to the CFO of Potiphar's household until some time later he was accused of violating or trying to violate Potiphar's wife, and she, her, her husband cast him into a prison cell. He remains in a prison cell for many, many years, 12 years, until Parai, who has dreams that are disturbing him, hears about Yosef as a great dream interpreter, and he takes him out of the prison cell and brings him to him, 
And when Yosef explains to Pari the meaning and the symbolism of his dreams and gives him a plan of action, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, you need a person to be in charge of the economy in Egypt to be able to designate and put away during food during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. Pari is overwhelmed by Yosef's vision, his skill, his brilliance, his genius. You're the man, he says, and he appoints him to become the prime minister of Egypt. Yosef is 30 years old when he meets Parai. He was sold as a 17-year-old lad. Now he's 30 when he stands in front of Parai. That means for 13 years, he has already been separated from his father, from his household back in Hebron. Much of that time he was in Petifra's house, and most of the time he was in prison. And now at the age of 30, he's standing in front of Parai. Seven years of plenty indeed create tremendous produce and an abundance of success and prosperity within the land of Egypt. And Yosef, who is now in charge of the entire economic infrastructure, makes sure to put away food for the hard times coming. And indeed, hunger arrives and it swallows up the years of plenty to the point that the hunger is so potent that people forget how good it was. And Everybody is coming to Egypt to get food, including, of course, Yosef's own siblings, who now come down from the land of Israel, where there's also this devastating famine, to get food. And at this point, Yosef recognizes them. He accuses them of espionage. He puts them in prison for three days. At the end of three days, he sends all of them home, besides one, who he keeps in prison, Shimon, And the condition is that if they want to come back for more food and get Shimon back, they have to authenticate their claim that they still have a brother at home, a little baby brother called Binyamin, and they have to bring him. He wasn't such a baby in terms of age, but a baby in the sense that he was the youngest. And at that point, they could come back home. They come back home. Yaakov is very perturbed by what happened. He already lost Yosef. He lost Shimon who's in Egypt, languishing in a prison. They want to take Binyamin. Yaakov refuses to give Binyamin. Reuven says, give me Binyamin, I'll bring him back, and if not, you can kill both of my children. Yaakov completely rejects Reuven's deal, and at this point, there's stalemate. Nobody's going anywhere. But when the hunger increases, and Yaakov's family is starving, Yaakov asks his boys to go back and get more food, and that's when Yehuda, the fourth son, speaks up and says, we can't. The one who's in charge is the prime minister of Egypt. He told us that if we don't bring Binyamin, there's no reason to come back. It's at this point that Yehuda pleads with his father and he says, I will be the guarantor. I will be the man, the one who guarantors his returning to you. And if not, the chatasi I will remain in sin for you for all the days of my life. Yaakov is persuaded by Yehuda's plea, and he gives Binyamin to Yehuda. They now go back to Egypt. They go back to Egypt. They meet the prime minister of Egypt. He feasts with them. They drink. He gives them gifts. He fills their bags with grain, and they're their way back to Egypt. Everything seems to be fine. They have Shimon. They have Binyamin. Everything will work out at last. This is where the real nightmare begins. Without them knowing it, the prime minister of Egypt had his silver goblet 
hidden in Binyamin's bag. And on their way out of Egypt, they are being pursued. And the man who pursues them, the emissary of the prime minister, accuses them of theft. And not just small theft, but a theft of the prime minister's personal gviya hakesef, his personal silver goblet, the one that's used daily by the viceroy of Egypt. They, of course, say that they're innocent. They would never do such a thing. It's un, it's, it's unfathomable. When they even had extra money that was by mistake put in their bags on their way up, they brought it back. Why would they come and take something from the palace, from the viceroy of Egypt? But he accuses them. He says the prime minister knows who stole it. And we know the continuation of the story. He searches and everyone's bags are opened. He searches with the oldest. He ends up at the youngest. And when he opens Binyamin's bag... Right there is the personal silver goblet of the viceroy of Egypt. Binyamin is now caught as a thief. What happens is they all go back to Egypt. They meet the prime minister of Egypt. He asks them, why would you do such a thing? And Yehuda says, God has had some... God found an opportunity to penalize us for our sins, we shall all remain your slaves. And the prime minister says, no, God forbid, Khalila, well, that would be ridiculous. The thief, the one who's we found the goblet in his hand, he will be my slave. That's the rule of, oops, that's the rule in Egypt. He stole, he will become my slave. You go up in peace to your father. And it's fascinating that that's how the entire Parshas Miketz ends. You don't have any Parsha in the entire Chum, in the entire Chumash, the entire Chumash, Chumash, that ends right in the middle, in the thicket of a story, leaving one completely uh, spellbound and eager, curious to know how it's going to unfold. You can literally cut the drama, the electricity, with a knife. As the Prime Minister turns to them and says, you all go in peace, Atem Alulashalim, in peace, in harmony, go back to your father, let the thief remain my slave. This is the context. What is to be done right now? What do you do at such a moment? Of course, they don't know who they're speaking to. They don't know that this was a setup. How could they know? They don't know. The Medrash even, records, and as I told you many times, the medrash to the text is what harmony is to a song. Harmony, whenever there's a medrash, people, when they learn medrash, they think mistakenly that the rabbis have all these interpretations and stories and ideas that they just insert into the text, and you wonder why they would do it. And today I'm going to be discussing another medrash. But the truth is the medrash is always uh, an outgrowth from the text, if you could just sense the harmony. It's like what harmony does to a song. You could sing a song without harmony, but it's missing something. The harmony brings out, it accentuates the full depth of the ballad. That's what Medrash does. The Medrash even describes how the some of the brothers turned to Binyamin and said, you're just like your mother. You're just like your mother. We all remember what Rachel did over there. It was not a setup. She did steal the trophim 
of her father. However you interpret what those truffin were, idols or whatever, but she stole something from her father for, for good intentions. But she stole and they said, oh, what do they say? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You are your mother's child. <laughs> they were extremely sharp, sharp with Binyamin. Very, very disturbed that he would do this. Binyamin says, I'm innocent. I never did it. But who believes a, a guy when he has a silver goblet in the bag, right? You set me up. It's very hard to believe somebody. So it's a very serious moment. What happens now? I mean, the natural thing to do is go home and tell Yaakov, you know, we're so sorry. There's nothing we can do. I mean, even Yehuda could tell Yaakov, I guaranteed him, but this kid stole. Like, what am I supposed to do? If he would have behaved, I would bring him back. But he didn't behave. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm not a miracle worker. What, what do you want me to do? I guaranteed his safety if he behaves as an ordinary human being, not if he breaks the law of the land, even worse. He does performs an act which you might call treason. What am I supposed to do? But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. And you always have to ask yourself, what would you do in such a moment? Like, what, what is the right response? Yosef says, go back home. You guys didn't do anything wrong. Go back home. Let Binyamin remain here as a slave. Obviously, after all, he's the thief. It's this context that serves as the, as the backdrop, the backdrop. <laughs> and it wasn't such a pink backdrop or purple backdrop behind the longest speech in Sefer Bereshis. As I told you, 17 psukim. It begins Genesis chapter 44, Posik Yotches, Vayigash Perik Mandal Posik Yotches, and it continues throughout Posik Lamadalat. Verse 18, Bereshis chapter 44, from verse 18 through verse 34. Yudches through Lamadalat. 17 psukim of Yehuda speaking without interruption. What does he say in these 17 psukim? You might think he comes to Yosef and says, Abyssal Rachmanus, I need you to have compassion. Okay, that would be one pasuk. He may add about how it's going to affect Yaakov. But no, this is a long, constructed presentation. And I should say in parentheses, and it's not the topic of my of my shear today, I'm just saying this in parentheses, if you ever, ever want to learn how to present something, if you ever want to learn what they call the art of communication, the art of speaking, the art of teaching, you study Yehuda's Speech of 17 verses. I know that there's books and books and books and seminars and workshops, but here you have 17 psukim with not only uh, the story, but also a blueprint of how to present. Yehuda. Yehuda approaches Yosef. He doesn't know it's Yosef. He's speaking to the viceroy of Egypt. He never knew it was Yosef. He says, I need to speak to you. Please don't get upset at me. We understand, as Rashi says, that it's going to be intense. If it's not going to be intense, if he's going to offer him a lollipop, he wouldn't ask him not to get upset. So he says, first, I need you to listen to me, and I ask you not to get upset. Those are his introduction. What happens next, in a, a huge part of this speech is, Yehuda repeats the events. 
apparently without giving any commentary. He simply tells over a story that he knows and the Prime Minister knows. Because he's just almost in a dry way just saying what happened. He says, when we came here the first time, you asked us if we have a father, if we have a brother. And we told you we have an old father and he has a young child. We also told you that his brother died and he remains alone for his father and his mother. This, 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 our father had two children for one mother, one one of his wives. Of course, we know it's Rachel, but he doesn't say that. And Binyamin is the only one who remains because his brother his brother died. Now, in parentheses, it's interesting to note that Yehuda said his brother died. Did he really believe that his brother died or not? Rashi says he was frightened that the Prime Minister is going to say, oh, find me that brother too. So he just said he died. Other commentators disagree and say that at this point, Yehuda really believed that Yosef was gone, Yosef was dead. The Mashachachma says it comes from the Daskenim. The Rash, according to the Rashbam, it seems that way. In any case, this is what Yehuda says. You told us, he's just repeating the conversation. You told us, bring down this young child and I will keep an eye on him. I will cast my eye on him, meaning I will pay very close attention to him. We told you, we can't. Because if he leaves his father, his father is going to die. It's too much. His father can't lose his second child. You told us that if he doesn't come down, don't come back to see my face. That's what you told us. So he's repeating the story. So we go back to my father and we tell him what happened. And my father says, bring us more food. And we tell our father, we can't. Because you said that if we don't bring our baby brother, we cannot see his face. And your father and my father tells us, you know that I had two children. You know that I had two children for my wife. One is gone, and I believe that he was devoured. Now you're going to take the second one. He too may die, and I will go to my grave in absolute grief. From Pasuk Yud Ches, till Pasuk Chavtes, or Pasuk Yud Tes, Pasuk Chavtes, more than 10 verses, most of the speech, he's just telling a story. That's it. Most of the story, the Prime Minister knows already, because it's about their conversation last time they were in Egypt. So most of the story he knows, but he's repeating the story. He's giving it context. He's presenting it. Now you may ask, isn't this superfluous? Why are you telling him what he knows? He knows everything he told you. He knows that he told you, don't see my face if you don't bring down your brother. Why are you repeating to him what he knows? And even if you are, why is the Torah recording it? We know this story. We know what happened. Not every conversation is recorded in entirety. Certain message is taken out, that which is relevant to the story. But the Torah somehow has Yehuda repeat the entire story and exchange that the Prime Minister knows about, and it puts it into the speech. Apparently, it's profoundly relevant. What happens now? After verse 18 till verse 29, Pasuk Lamed, Yehuda now concludes. And now, when I come back to my father, 
And I'm going to quote because I want you to listen to this. And here we'll do an interesting experiment. I know you don't have the svarim in front of you. Most of Jewish history exists before the printing press. The printing press begins only in the 15th century. That's when books are printed in mass. Right? The printing press is one of those few things that changed history. And before the printing press, to have a book was very rare because it had to be handwritten by a scribe, which means it took a lot of time. It was very expensive. So it was very rare. So what did Shabbos in Shul look like? Or what did Yom Tif in Shul look like? So today, everybody sits in their place and they have a chumash, right? Today, Shuls also have another hundred magazines and pamphlets to deal with boredom and monotony and ADD and ADHD. But, uh, as they say, fired the Krieg before the war, right? On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, when everything was perfect, every shul, you sat, men's section, women's section, you had a chumash, and you followed. But that's a recent, that's relatively a modern development. I don't mean modern the last 20 years. I mean modern the last few centuries. But for most of Jewish history, that didn't happen. So how did they listen? They didn't read. They listened. The experience was not an experience of the eyes. It was an experience of the ears. Now, it's very hard for us to understand that because today it's an experience of the eyes. I'm reading. Then it was an experience of the ears. You heard, you listened. So first of all, it allowed people to listen much better. Second of all, the music of the Sefer Torah, the way it's read, was designated for the listener, not for the reader. The music is one. It's called the cantillations, the trop. The Taimei HaMikra are one that are designated for the listener to be able to be in tuned to the message and the theme. Here in the speech of Yehuda, you have a Pasuk that concludes, I don't know if there's such a Pasuk in the whole of Chumash. Because it, the sentence doesn't end. You would call it a run-on sentence and then another run-on sentence and grammatically you might fail your student. But the great artists of words know that sometimes you have to break the rules in order to transform the heart. So the rules completely get broken here. And I'm going to read it in Hebrew and then translate. Yehudas tells the story and now he gives his punchline. When I'm going to come to your servant, my father. And the lad, the boy is not with me. I'm expecting to hear the result. But what happens now is, there's like a hyphen, hyphen, so to speak. You don't have that in the same I'm just saying that. I'm going to come back to my father. The lad is not with me. And his soul is intertwined with his soul. And that's the end of the Pasuk. What? And his soul is intertwined with his soul. So now I expect, okay, the next verse, you're going to finish the sentence. No. And when he sees that the child is not there, you see what Yehuda is doing? He said, I'm going to come back to my father without the boy. 
finish the sentence. What's going to happen? He doesn't. And his soul is intertwined with his soul. Do you understand who this boy is? Okay, now finish the sentence. No, no, no. When he sees that there's no child, Vamace, he will die. And we will literally take our father's old age and bring him down to the grave in absolute grief. So he told the whole story. He now says what's going to be the result. And now he goes to the next part of a speech, how this relates to him. You have to understand where I come into the picture. I guaranteed this boy. I told my father, if I don't bring him back, I will remain in sin for you, towards you for the rest of my life. That's how I come into this picture. So what now? Pasek Lamed Gimel, solution. I have a solution. What's my solution? I will be the slave. You want a slave? He's the thief. I remain the slave, and he goes back with his brothers. You would think the speech should now be over. You recap the story, which we still have to understand why. You explain the consequence of what will happen if this plays out the way it's playing out now and they all go back to their father without Binyamin, without the boy, without the boy. You explain why you are interfering, why you are intervening because you're the guarantor, you took responsibility. You gave your solution. I will be the slave. I'm taking the place of the thief. I want to bear the punishment and the consequences. He goes back. But then Yehuda gives the final Pasuk. And some of Farshim say it's superfluous. He said this already. And even if he said it in the speech, why does the Torah record it? What are his final, what's his final Pasuk? Ki eich elel aviv How can I go up to my father without a child? Why not? Pen How can you allow me to see the pain and the suffering that will overwhelm and befall my father when I come back without this boy? That's the end. And they say he really said that. He said right after he told the story. If I go back without this boy, their souls are connected. When he sees that the boy is not there, he's going to die. And then he gave a solution. Let me be the slave. Why are you repeating yourself? And even if you're repeating yourself, you don't put it into text. Those of you who write, and I know we have some very prominent and distinguished writers of the Jewish world sitting here. You write for newspapers. You write for magazines. You write books. Repetition is not allowed. If a person wants to review the paragraph again, go back. It used to be in speeches repetition was allowed because they can't go back. Today, even in a speech, you go back. If it's recorded, you just go back. So what's the justification for repetition? Even if he said it again, why are you recording it? 
And in the Torah, an extra posik is no small thing. The speech is already much longer than any other speech. God never gave such a long speech in the whole Torah, 17 words. I mean 17 verses. Moshe Rabbeinu never gives such long speeches. As a speech, as a presentation to somebody else, as a, not as a speech, as a conversation, as a monologue, I should say. Because there was no dialogue, it was just a monologue. There's no monologue like this. You already did 16, and then you repeat again. Because how can I go up to my father without this boy? Why not? How can you allow me to see the pain that will overtake my father? This is such a powerfully constructed presentation that you could learn it and learn it and learn it and always discover more layers of depth. One fascinating insight. How many times does he say the word my father in the speech? Fourteen. Fourteen times. (laughs) Fourteen times the word my father, our father. And whenever you see a word repeating itself more frequently than any other word, you always have to assume in Chumash, in Tanakh especially, that that's where the in the message lay. That's where the crux of the message lay. In other words, it's what you would call a thematic word. A thematic word means that this word is not just a word that's part of the construction of a sentence or a paragraph, but it's a word that is indispensable, indispensable to the message you're trying to convey. Fourteen times. Not in every Pasuk, the 17 Pesukim, but almost in every single one, he says this word. It starts off right away. You asked us, do you have a father? That's how he starts off the conversation. And we said, we have a father. You said, bring down the boy. We said, he can't leave his father. Every time Yehuda says about his Responds, there is always my father. We went back to my father. My father said, our father said, we said to our father, I come back to my father. The boy is not here. Our father goes to the grave. I guaranteed it to my father. How can I go up to my father without the lad? And in this passage, he says, I'm going to see what happens to my father. In fact, the last word of the presentation is Avi. My father. In order to appreciate Yehuda's presentation and its consequences, its results, I'm going to open up for you a fascinating midrash, midrashic commentary on this exchange. I keep on saying exchange, on this monologue, on this presentation. And here's a classic example. Some of you, when you grew up in school, you probably heard these medrashim that I'm going to say because they're very famous. And many teachers, when they teach Vayigash, they teach these medrashim. But I'm going to ask you a question today. And that is, is there something missing here? Let's listen to what the sages teach us in the Medrash about this presentation of Yehuda and ask ourselves the question, what 
inspired, what triggered, what motivated this commentary. Indeed, the Medrash opens up our eyes to the fact that there was a whole other conversation going on. There was a whole other presentation going on. When you read it in the text, it's pretty powerful, it's pretty intense, it's pretty emotional. If you allow yourself to read it and absorb it and integrate it emotionally, it's a very powerful text. Comes the Medrash and presents a whole new perspective. Now, there's a lot of long Medrashim on this, but I'm going to call just a few pieces that really characterize the message we're trying to convey. This is from Medrash Tanchuma, Parshas Vayigash. The first thing that happens in the Medrash is, when we read the text, only Yehuda is speaking. It's a monologue. In the Medrash, it becomes a dialogue. And that's the first question. Where did they find a dialogue here? There's no dialogue in Chumash. Why would they do this? Where is there a dialogue? Let's hear the dialogue. Yehuda tells the Prime Minister, the first thing, you asked us if we have a father or a brother. That was wrong of you. That was a blood libel. Everybody comes to Egypt to get food. You don't ask anybody about their fathers and brothers. Are we trying to marry your sister? That you're investigating our family? Is this a shidduch resume? Interesting. We don't want to marry your sister. Why are you asking us if we have a father or a brother? It's really irrelevant. You came in, we come into a store to buy food. I'm not here to share with you all my family secrets and skeletons. So the Medrash says, Yosef says, Yehuda, why are you speaking up instead of all your brothers? Why are you the only one who came over to me? I see from my goblet that you have older brothers. Why don't you let your older brothers speak? So Yehuda says, because I'm the guarantor. I told our father that I'm going to guarantee Binyamin. So Yosef tells him, Really? Why didn't you become a guarantor for your other brother, whom you sold to the Ishmaelites for 70, for 20 silver coins, and you caused your father endless grief, making him believe that that brother was devoured by an animal? And that brother never even sinned. This kid is a thief. Still, you're saying that you're the guarantor for him. You had another brother whom you sold. You sold him for a couple of coins. You never became a guarantor for that brother. And you know what you did to your father as a result. Why don't you go back to your father and say, The rope followed the pitcher. The rope followed the bucket. Tell that to your father. When Yehuda heard this, he screamed and cried and said the words, how can I go back to my father without this child? So the prime minister says, you know what? Let's have a debate. You present your side. I will present my side. And let's see who triumphs in the debate. So Yehuda tells his brother Naphtali, the great runner, 
Go check out how many marketplaces there are in Egypt. He comes back, there are 12. Yehuda tells his brother, I will destroy three of them. The others, each one take a market. We will not allow anybody here to live. So his brothers say, Yehuda, Mitzrayim is not Shechem. If you destroy Mitzrayim, you destroy the world. This is what the Medrash has in this conversation. They put it in here. <laughs> really? Medrash Tanchum. If you look at Medrash Rabbi Bereshis, it says that when Yosef was responding harshly, Yehuda started to scream. His voice resonated so far, and I say the words of the Medrash, that there was a Jew living in Israel who heard Yehuda screaming. His name was Chushim, the son of Don, who had a problem hearing. But even he was affected. He came to Egypt. He came to Yehuda. They both started to scream and they wanted to turn over Egypt. <clears throat> if you look further in Tanchuma, there's even a more intense conversation that takes place. Yehuda tells Yosef in this dialogue, why did you accuse us of being spies in the beginning? You're the one who created this whole mess. We came as innocent people. You decided we're spies. You told us that we came here to check out the nakedness of the land, Erva Sa'aretz, to see how we could conquer it. Then you tell us that we stole a goblet. And every time you swear, you swear by the life of Para, who's wicked. Every time I swear, I swear in the name of my father, who's righteous. I want to tell you, once I take out my sword, I can destroy your entire country. Yosef tells him, take out your sword and I will wrap it around your neck. Yehuda says, if I open my mouth, I will swallow you up. Yosef says, and if you open your mouth, I will plug it with a rock. I will put a boulder in your mouth. Yehuda tells the prime minister, and what should I tell my father when I go back? And he says, I told you, tell your father that the rope followed the pitcher. Yehuda tells the prime minister, your verdict is one of lies and falsehood. The prime minister says, you're talking to me about a verdict of falsehood and lies, and who decided to sell another brother? That was a fair verdict. That was a verdict of justice. Yehuda tells the prime minister, there's a fire burning in my heart, and I'll tell you which fire it is. It's the fire of Shechem. It's the fire of what was burning in my heart when they stole and kidnapped, abducted and violated my sister Dina. The prime minister tells Yehuda, no, 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 it's a different fire burning in your heart. The fire that's burning in your heart is the fire of Tamar, your daughter-in-law, whom you violated. And if you want, I can extinguish that fire. Yehuda says to the prime minister, I am going to go and die, die as in D-Y-E, all the marketplaces of Egypt with blood, and the prime minister says, oh, I've always known you're a good artist and a good dyer. 
Many years ago, you took the tunic of your brother whom you sold and you dyed it with blood of a goat and you sent it back to your father who believed that your brother was devoured by a wild animal. I know that you know how to take blood and make a beautiful artistic picture with it. That's the exchange in the Medrash. Now when you read these things, one wonders, and this is important, why would the Chazal take this monologue, very tragic, very well constructed, Yehuda constructed this, not that he needs my endorsement, but the fact is Yehuda constructed this impeccably, flawlessly, in its ups, in its downs, in the entire transition from one theme to another theme until the punchline. This is a very well-constructed speech. Why did the rabbis and the sages and the medrash take this great monologue? Tragic, humane, sensitive, compassionate, responsible, mature, and deeply soul-triggering, and transform it into a sharp, shrewd, almost sly dialogue in which I stech you, I sting you, you sting me. I'll kill everybody and the sword will go around my neck. I'll swallow you and then I'll fill your mouth with a stone, etc. I'm going to paint every, the blood everywhere. I'm the great blood painter. Obviously we understand that they didn't mean this on a literal level, which is true about many Midrashim. Because on a literal level, he doesn't know it's Yosef. <laughs> if he would know it's Yosef, the whole story wouldn't happen. So this whole exchange about Shem and Tamar and all that can't mean on a literal level. He doesn't know it's Yosef. That's the whole point of the story. Obviously, what they're teaching us is that there is a deeper story going on. Here is where I come back to the metaphor. You could sing a song... You ever go on the piano? Right? Dum dum. Or in the olden days you'd be da 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 dum dum pum 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 pum. We have evolved. From Yankee Duty to Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Now, technically, I did the song for you. But you're not going to come to my concert if this is what it's going to sound like, right? You're not going to pay even $25 to get a seat on the 23rd bleacher in the West Wing because there's something off. Technically, we got the sum, but there was no, there was something off. We need resonance. We need harmony. We need the full song. That's why there's a pianist who sits down and goes, da, 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 da. They did technically, they pressed the right keys. But it's very different than when a skilled pianist sits down and does the entire song with all of the harmony and you get the full resonance and flavor of it. Medrash to the text of Chumash is harmony to the song. And I want to show you what this Medrash does in this story. It's the harmony to the song. There's a profound message being exchanged here. And in order to understand this, I'm going to ask another question. It changes the subject a little bit, but not completely. And the question I'm going to ask is, when you're reading Sefer Bereshis, 
and you watch the story of Yosef unfolding, it's obvious that this boy is a success story. It's obvious that this boy's dreams of royalty have been implemented. It's obvious that this 17-year-old lads, the 17-year-old boy's aspirations for kingship, monarchy, authority, leadership, success have unfolded, albeit in a very roundabout and tragic and challenging way. But when he dreamt that all the sheaves of his brothers will bow to him, that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars will bow to him. It happened. He is the boy who, despite all of his travails and challenges and pain and agony, always rises to the top. Ultimately, from a prisoner, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt, the superpower of the time. And from an ethical point of view, he's a shining star. He will ultimately forgive his brothers, welcome his brothers, feed his brothers, relocate them and give them a wonderful life throughout the, all the days of his life till he dies at the age of 110 at the end of the preparations, the end of Ayichi. And this person, one immediately sees, has vision, skill, wisdom, brilliance, prowess, beauty, chain, grace, God is with him. He is both humble and emotional and brilliant. And he indeed becomes the king. He becomes the second to the most powerful person in the ancient world. As such, it seems that the gift of royalty is his. The contrast to Yosef from all his brothers is Yehuda. Yehuda is the man who is responsible for selling him into slavery. We know that because the poet says earlier in Vayeshev, the brothers wanted to kill Yosef. Reuven said, cast him into a well, hoping to get him out, retrieve him and bring him home. When he's in a well, it was Yehuda who spoke up in Vayeshev and said, Ma betza, what benefit will there be? As Rashi says, what financial profit will we have by letting our brother die in the well? It does not make sense. And therefore it was Yehuda who said, Let's sell him. Yehuda is the one who proposed the sale. Which of course allows us to understand what the Medrash says, that her minister told Yehuda, where were you when your other brother was being sold? Where was the guarantor? Not only were you not a guarantor, you're the one who sold him. Here you're guaranteeing Binyamin. Then not only did you not serve as a guarantor, you're the one who took your brother and cast him away from his father, sold him into slavery forever. A slave was a slave forever, if not for the unique circumstances that took place. So Yehuda is the one who sold his brother into slavery. He is the one who said it, and the brothers listened. And that's what they did. Reuven comes back to the pit. Yosef is not there. Reuven is devastated. That's when they dip the shirt of Yosef in blood. They send it to Yaakov, and he recognizes it. That's the first story we have about Yehuda. What's the second story we have about Yehuda? Right after this, the Torah shifts course and tells us, Yehuda descended from his brothers and all the commentators, many commentators say, it wasn't just a physical descent, it was moral decline. Whereas Rashi says they demoted him from his unique status. They blamed him for everything. They blamed him for the grief. Vayet, and he left. He left. 
Wow. Yaakov lost a son, Yosef, and Yehuda voluntarily said bye-bye to his family. What's her feeling now about Yehuda? He sold his brothers. He left the family. He married somebody from the, if you say the Knani means from the Canaanites, is a commentary about, there's an argument in the commentaries. He found the daughter of a Knani. Does a Knani mean a merchant? Or does a Knani mean somebody from Canaan? The patriarchs did not want their children to marry from the daughters of Canaan. We know what happened by Avraham. We know what happened by Yitzchak. We know what happened with Yaakov. But here Yehuda goes and marries the daughter of a Kna'ani. We know that he loses both sons. Eir and Oinon both die, the Torah says, because of sin. What he does to Tamar, the Torah clearly says, is unjust. He keeps her bound in shackles. He doesn't let her go off. He doesn't want her to marry his third son, Shayla. That's when Tamar, who is desperate, does what she does, because before Matan Torah, you could do Yibum also with a father-in-law, not only with a brother-in-law. So she has relations with Yehuda. He doesn't know that he was with Tamar. He thinks Tamar got pregnant from somebody else, and he accuses her of adultery. He has her being burnt on the stake. And when she's going out to the stake, she sends him a message. Here is the collateral that I took from the man who was with me. Recognize who belong, who this belongs to, because he is the father of the children I'm carrying. And of course, it's Yehuda's shirt, it's Yehuda's stick, it's Yehuda's seal. Vayaker Yehuda, he recognizes it. He says, Sotka, she's right, me many. I'm the one who did this. And she gives birth to Peretz and Zarach. And then you go back to the story of Yosef. So now I ask you a question. You look at the story of Yosef. You look at the story of Yehuda. Yosef never sold a brother. It says that Yosef spoke negative things to his father about his brothers. Okay, but he never sold his brother. Yehuda sold his brother into slavery. Yehuda confessed with Tamar at the end, saving grace. But what about Yosef? Yosef never even got into the mess in the first place. He also had a woman pursuing him. And what did he do? He fled. He ran away. And he went to prison for that. Compare the two stories. The Torah keeps on juxtaposing these two personalities. You're talking about a completely different caliber, it seems, of a person. And yet something fascinating happens in Jewish history. On his deathbed, Yaakov speaks to all of the children. He says beautiful things about Yosef, incredible things about Yosef. The charming child, Ben Pyrus Yosef, Ben Pyrus Alayayan, how appealing to the eye, how he had to deal with fights, with haters and aggressors his whole life, how he rose to the top, the power of an ox, the beauty of the Re'em, Extraordinary words about Yosef. But when he speaks to Yehuda, what does he say? The scepter will not leave Yehuda. The ruler will never leave the family of Yehuda. Until Mashiach comes, the gift of Malchus, of royalty, belongs to Yehuda, not to Yosef. 
Yes, in Egypt, Yosef is the king. The brothers bow to him. He is the leader. Yosef hu ashalat hu amash bebar. But in the future of Jewish history, lo Yosef shevet mid. And remember, Yosef was there when Yaakov passed away. Everybody heard it. Malchus is a gift of Yehuda. The Abarbanel even argues that the whole point of the blessings that Yaakov gave at the end of his life was to tell the children that Yehuda remains the king. And when you look at Jewish history, what happens? Yehoshua ben Nun succeeds Moshe Rabbeinu, taking the Jews into Eretz Israel. He comes from the family of whom? Of Yosef. Yehoshua came from the tribe of Ephraim. In fact, when Moshe went up on the mountain to pray for the Jews who were fighting Amalek, he was flanked by two people. He had Chur. Chur came from the family of Kalev, Yehuda. He had Yehoshua from the family of Yosef. So Yehoshua is from the family of Yosef. When the first king has to be chosen, who is the first king? Shaul. Shaul is from the family of Binyamin, who is Yosef's full brother, blood brother. But his kingship doesn't last. Who becomes the permanent king of the Jewish people? Dynasty, the dynasty of aristocracy is given to him. David HaMelech, who succeeds Shaul. David comes from the tribe of, we all know, Yehuda. David's father was Yishai, Yishai's father was Ovid, Ovid's father was Boyaz. Boyaz was a descendant of Peretz, who came from the relationship between Yehuda and Tamar that we discussed earlier. David's son is Shloim HaMelech. The Tehillim says many times, God guarantees David, Melucha, the crown of kingship was given to your family, even if there are other kings. After Solomon, after Shloim's death, the kingship splits. You remember Yenach, women? You remember your Gemers? It's been a couple of years ago. Okay. This kingship splits. And what happens? There's a new king. Who's the new king? Yeravam. Where does he come from? Yeravam comes from Yosef. So you have Rechavam, the son of Shloimeh, the son of David, who comes from Yehuda. And the second king, the rival king, is Yeravam, who comes from Ephraim, who's the son of Yosef. And there's now a split, two kingdoms. But in 722 BCE, the Assyrians exile most of the ten tribes, including Ephraim, including Menashe, and they soon assimilate. We never hear of the ten tribes again, even though every few years you hear about a tribe in Africa and a tribe in Afghanistan and a tribe in Japan that doesn't need bread for a couple of days. Ephraim and Menashe are gone. Which tribes remain? Yehuda, Binyamin Yehuda and his king survive the Babylonian dispersion and exile. They come back and rebuild the second base of Mikdash. They come back and reestablish the Jewish commonwealth. And the family of Yehuda remains intact. And even after the destruction of the second temple, the Rej Galusa, the heads of the exile in Babylonia come from Shevet Yehuda. And the spiritual leadership of the Jewish people comes from Shevet Yehuda, the family of Hillel, which came from David HaMelech all the way from Yehuda. And that continues, Hillel and his sons, Reb Gamliel, Reb Shemem Gamliel, for many, many generations. And of course, the future as well belongs to Yehuda. As the Rambam says, Mashiach, one of the qualifications of Melech HaMashiach, who we, we await every day, is that he has to come from where? Mizera David Ushloima. From the, the seed of David and Shloima. The send of David and Shlaima. What happened? 
Yosef is the first great king. But the gift of royalty went over to Yehuda. In this portion, Yehuda is pleading with Yosef. Yosef is the sovereign king. Yehuda is the subject begging him, I want to be the slave. I'm going to be the slave. I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. In the Haftarah of Ayigash, you look at the Haftarah this week, Yecheskel Lamed Zion, Ezekiel 37, a different story. Shem tells the Navi Yecheskel, after the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash, take two sticks, you know the story? One stick right Yehuda, the other stick right Yisrael, represents the two kingdoms that split after Shlomo HaMelech's passing. Bring them together and the two sticks will morph into one. And when the Jews will ask you, what are you doing? You're going to explain to them that there will come a time when there will not be a split in the Jewish world anymore. Va'avdi David Melech Aleihem La'olam. My servant David will be the eternal king of the Jewish people. Va'avdi David Nasi Lahem La'olam. In fact, in Jewish history, the Gemara and the Zoya speak about two Mashiachs. Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. Which means Yosef has a gift of royalty. But the ultimate Mashiach, Mashiach ben Yosef, is a prelude to Mashiach ben David, and that represents the ultimate unity of the two. Now I have to explain all of this. So let's do this brief and sharp and concise, and since I'm speaking to women, you'll get it fast. And maybe I'll also get it in the process. We have here an extraordinary presentation in a very subtle but unmistakable and potent way about the human condition and the struggles of the human condition from moral decline to moral and spiritual greatness. Yosef is described in Tyre, four words, the only man who gets this description in Chumash. There's women who get this description, but no man. And when a man gets this description, you're like, whoa, wow. Ve'hi Yosef, yefei toyar ve'yefei mara. Yefei toyar ve'yefei mara, who's beautiful. Now, beauty in Chumash is not just physical beauty, it's physical beauty too. It's holistic beauty. Holistic beauty means physical, reflective of spiritual and moral beauty. The two are not divorced from each other. It's the only reason the Torah goes out to explain, goes goes out of its way, or not out of its way, but explicitly discusses Sarah's beauty, to the point of Avram saying, discusses Rivka's beauty, discusses Rachel's beauty, and then discusses Yosef's beauty. On one level, it's an introduction to teach us what happened in Potiphar's house. Why Potiphar's wife was so eager to be with him. On another level, it's a description of Yosef. Yosef was beautiful. As Rashi and the commentators say, Toyar and Mara don't mean the same thing. Mara is the countenance, the face. The light that comes from a person's face. Mare, the look. Toyar is physique, structure, symmetry. The relationship of the limbs with each other. 
the physical entire structure of a person. To give an example in another area, speaking about presentations, right? Whenever you hear a presentation, there's two elements. There's toyar and there's mara. And it's not the same thing. Mara is the energy, the halo, the vibe, the atmosphere, the light that comes from it. Toyar is the structure. Some people have one without the other. Some of you have been at conferences, a person gets up, they give a very structured presentation, but you want to call the Hever Kadisha afterwards. You know what I mean? There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Sometimes professors get up and they believe it's a mitzvah to be boring because the more monotonous it sounds, the more sophisticated people will think it is. It's structured beautifully, impeccably, but there's something missing. There's no shine, there's no glow, there's no air. Sometimes there is a charisma, but there's no structure. There's no meat and potatoes. You There are faces that have a halo, that have a shine. But in terms of symmetry and physique, that's another blessing. Yosef has both. It's not just on a physical level, that's true as well. It's also on a moral level, on a spiritual level. And you look at Yosef's life, that's what you see. His beauty does not stop shining. And when I say about beauty, again, I'm not only talking about his physical beauty. His inner beauty doesn't stop shining. Poitifar sees it. Poitifar's wife sees it. The prisoners see it. He's the only man who languishing in a cell for 10 years without a relative, without anybody to help him, being betrayed by every person he ever helped in his life, sees a butler and a baker depressed one morning. And what's his instinctive response? You remember? He sees two people, sour, depressed. Madua pnechem royim hayayim. Chevra, why aren't you happy? Why aren't you jolly? Why aren't you celebrating life? What's going on? As though this guy was sitting in an ivory tower with all success and prosperity when he should have been in the abyss of depression and trauma. Where does this come from? It's a beautiful person. And nobody can extinguish his beauty. Nobody can extinguish his zest for life, his oomph, his spirit, his love, his warmth, his passion, coupled with skill, coupled with brilliance, coupled with wisdom and faith. There's just, you fall in love with Yosef. There's nobody you fall in love with like Yosef when you read his story. There's just something extraordinary about it. Like oil, he just always rises to the top. And not through confrontation, through inner peace and harmony. You ever watched oil? You could mix it with everything. You can try to destroy it on every level. You could pour in mango juice and celery juice. You can even pour in wheatgrass juice. French wines and Italian wines and Swiss wines. The best wines. Water, apple juice, even Coca-Cola. Coffee, tea, the best in the shenster and the healthiest juices in the world. Even pomegranate juice. And it looks like you got the oil down. And what happens a few seconds later? Slowly. I don't fight with anybody. He's just right there. Here I am. With dignity. There's a reason we lead the parishes of Yosef during Hanukkah. Yosef was that person. And it comes from an inner connection with something that is transcendent, 
like we spoke many times in our classes, Yosef had this conviction that he was never sold. He was sent. He was an ambassador of the divine. And it kept him very powerful and very good-spirited, even when he remained emotionally intact. There's something unique about him. And here we come to something that is extraordinary about what the Torah is teaching us, about Yosef versus Yehuda. And Yehuda, in many ways, is on the opposite extreme. When Yehuda says, what money will we get from letting our brother die? Let's sell him. Those words you'll never hear from Yosef. When he had an opportunity to take revenge of his brothers, he told his brothers, I'm not God. I will never take revenge from you. You tried to hurt me, but God had a different plan. He's so graceful. Mamish the opposite. When Yosef faces the wife of Paitifar, who wants to pull him down morally, what happens? He says, how can I do such evil to God? How can I betray your husband? How can I betray God? Vayonas, he flees. And he was a slave. Yehuda wasn't a slave. Yehuda was a free man. Yehuda was a lord. Yehuda was a judge. He can even sentence a woman to death. Yosef was a slave for heaven's sake, 17 years old, had nobody in the world. And this one woman told him, if you listen to me, I'll promote you. You'll be on top of the world. If you betray me, I will torture you to death. I will blind the Gemara says in Yuma 35, I'll blind you. I will uh, torture you. I will incarcerate you. And she did that. She had him incarcerated. Still, he never lost his equilibrium. But there was something about Yehuda that Yosef did not have. And this will manifest itself throughout history. Because in the Jewish world and in our own life, we have both Mashiachs. We have both Redeemers. We have Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. We have the King Yosef and we have the King Yehuda. And each one plays an indispensable role in our life, in, in, our, in our growth, in our service of God, in our development. But there's something unique about Yehuda. And the best way to put it is, in the words of our sages in Tractate Brachas 34, In the place that the person who does repentance stands, even the greatest tzaddik cannot stand. Yosef is the only one of his brothers called a tzaddik. Yosef is called tzaddik Elyon in Zohar, Binyamin is called Tzadik Tachtan. The higher Tzadik, the lower Tzadik. They're both Tzadikim. Yehuda becomes the embodiment of a new type of person. We call that person the Baltruva. The person who stumbles and fails and reinvents themselves from their mistakes, from their darkness, from their struggles, from their demons, from their skeletons, from their ghosts, from their transgressions. Leah who named her sons, named him Yehuda. Yehuda, the Medrash says, has two meanings. One is gratitude. Hapam oida, gratitude. Yehuda has another meaning. You know what it is. Comes from the word? Haida'a, moida, vidui, which is to confess, to be moida, to submit, to acquiesce, to surrender, to be grateful, 
but to do something else, to be able to say, I'm sorry. That's Yehuda. Yehuda, relative to his level, of course, and I, I use words that apply it to our lives, even if with Yehuda itself it's always on a higher level, because you're dealing with the Shvatim, we have to remember that. Yehuda is a person who makes mistakes, but the moment he discovers his error, he has the courage to reinvent himself and never to remain stuck in an arrogant and complacent space of, if I did it, it must be right. And that's the key feature of Yehuda's life. And it's what Yosef is waiting to see. The profound mind of Yosef is waiting to see. Let's look at Tamar. Yehuda sentenced her to death. He believed she committed adultery and according to the law of the place, she deserved to die even though she was pregnant, which means you're sentencing her and her twins to death. The moment, however, he recognized what happened, what did he do? He said two words, Tzotka, she's right. And he could have, that's, he could have stopped there. <laughs> Let her go home and enjoy tea and have a good night's sleep. He said one more word, me many. I'm the one who did it. Wow. Do you know the WhatsApps that went around that day? Can you imagine the WhatsApps? I just imagine you know, the words Tzotka, me many, now they do those WhatsApps designs. It, viral is not the word. It went beyond viral. It reached the moon. Yehuda, <laughs> me many. I'm the one who's responsible for this whole chaos. I'm sentencing her to death. And then he said, and she was right. Because I have kept her in shackles. In fact, the Medrash says that when Yaakov was on his deathbed, he saw Yehuda and he said, Yehuda ato yoiducha achecha. You are Yehuda, your brothers will. Thank you, says the Medrash Yoiducha comes from the word Haida. All your brothers will learn how to confess and stand up to their mistakes from you. And Rabbi Shimon Bayechai says, that's the reason that his name became our name for eternity. As Rashbi says, when you ask a person, who are you? He doesn't say, I'm an Abrahamite. I'm an Isaacite. I'm a Jacobite. He says, Ani Yehudi. Really? Avram is garnished. Yitzchak chopped liver. Yaakov nothing. Yisrael. Ani Yehudi. I'm a Jew. Jew comes from the word Judah. Yehudi. Why him? Say, I'm a Reuvenite. I'm a Levite. I'm a Yisacharite. I'm a Josephite. Whenever you hear those answers, you know it's not Mamrish a Jew. <laughs> I'm a Knight. Yehuda. I'm a Jew. Yehudi. Why? He says, because the unique gift that Yehuda gave the Jewish people is going to be their most important gift in life. The ability to be able to fail, to look at my mistakes, to look at the pain, at the trauma, at the immaturity, at the insecurity, at the cluelessness, at the narcissism, at the agony, at the suffering at the miscalculation, at the stupidity. 
that caused me to follow a certain course in my life and to be able to shed a tear and say, I made a terrible mistake and today I want to reinvent myself. Binyamin stole a goblet, or so they think. He's Yosef's brother. They think he did it. That's why they tell him, you're just like Rachel. You even have the genes of your brother Yosef, who was always also a troublemaker. And suddenly, Vayigash, I love Yehuda. Yehuda speaks to Yosef. The 17-verse speech is not a small presentation. It's 17 verses because each posik represents more than anything else. A man who didn't only change, a man who transformed himself 180 degrees. That's the story. It's the power of metamorphosis. It's the power of transformation. Everything he said 22 years ago, Everything that came out of his mouth two decades ago is not only gone, it's replaced by the exact opposite conviction, affirmation, and response, sense of responsibility. When he says the word my father 14 times, he's trying to say something. Where were you 22 years ago when your father was weeping and sobbing? Where were you? You didn't know that your father loved Yosef? You didn't like Yosef because your father loved Yosef. You knew that your father loved Yosef. It says clearly in Vayeshev, they saw that Yaakov loves him more than the brothers and it was so hard for them. So what happened? Suddenly now, 22 years later, he will say, Avi, 14 times. He will repeat the whole story to Yosef, not because he thinks the prime minister doesn't know the story, but because the context in which he places the story, the way he repeats the story, gives perspective. Now let's remember, he's not just repeating what happened. He's giving a narrative. The narrative is, the narrative is, look at the contrast. I kept on telling you, there's an old father who suffered a lot, and he has one child who comforts him. The contrast to that is you, who force us to take this child away from the father. You, who tell us and promise us you're going to take good care of this child. You, who tell us that if you don't come back with this child, you can't see my face again. The contrast between a child and a father who are so close, and a prime minister of a country who seems clueless to their emotions. Imagine what Yosef is thinking when he hears these words from Yehuda. The man who sold him into slavery 22 years ago. The whole repetition is that as he's telling the story, he's not repeating a story. He is highlighting the nuances to show the contrast of innocent brothers trying to protect their old father and young baby brother and a prime minister whose heart, it seems, is stone-like and completely insensitive. 
When they tell Yosef, when he tells Yosef, we needed more food, our father says, bring more food. And we told him, we can't, we need the boy. And our father told us, you know that two children, I had two children for my wife. One was killed, and now you're going to take away the other one. Yaakov never told that to them. We can go back to the story. He never said that. Do you think he would tell all of his sons, my wife gave me two children? They all came from other wives. My wife gave, well, he didn't have other wives. Yaakov could have not, could have not said that. Even if he said it, he said it in front of all of them. He couldn't have said it in front of all of them. That's where the Torah, the Torah never mentions it. But Yehuda is trying to speak to the heart of the prime minister. He's trying to touch his heart. He wants to shake him up. He says, there's a man who had two boys. One died. And there's one left. You can't do this. You may know the story during the Second World War. There was a mother who lost a few of her children in combat. Normandy, 1944. And there was another brother who was still out there. And they decided to go bring that brother back. So she shouldn't have to bury that other brother as that other child also as a result of the, of the Second World War. He's trying to shake, shake him up. And that's why he says, when I come back and the child is not with me, and he doesn't finish. He says, their two souls are connected. They're intertwined. When he sees himself without that boy, his soul will not be able to continue living in this world. Vamace, vamace, he will die. He keeps on pushing off that punchline as though it's almost so difficult, difficult to say. I do want to give credit to Nechama Libowitz for a lot of the analysis, including the number of times it says my father, which I think I saw by her. 14 times my father, and you know how many times he says the word servant? 13 times. I'll be the servant 13 times. Father, 14 times. And here we come to the punchline of his presentation. I asked before, the last verse is a repetition. He said, if I come back without this boy, my father is going to die. He gave a suggestion, let me be the slave. His last posik is, his last statement is, how can I go up to my father without the nar? I may just see what happens to my father. I can't do that. The Svasemes says something very powerful. He says earlier, just a few verses earlier, Yehuda told Yosef, told the prime minister, you know why I'm screaming? Because I'm the guarantee. I'm the guarantor. I told my father, if I don't bring him back, I will remain sinful for the rest of my life. You would think that's the punchline. The punchline is, I can't feel this guilt for the rest of my life. My conscience will not have a day of rest. That's pretty noble. But that's not what he was saying. His last verse is, Eich elel how can I go back without a child? What's going to be unbearable more than anything else is not my sin. 
It's rather what happens to my father. Even if I can have every justification in the world, I tried hard. It's not about me. So after you said, but he said it already. Of course he said it already. That's the point. He said it already. But this is his last statement because this is the ultimate moment. Yosef told them, Alula Shalom Alavichem, go back in peace to your father. His last word was Avichem. And now in Yehuda's presentation, what is his last statement? What is the key? The key is all the excuses in the world I'll give. All the justifications, all the rationalizations. He's a thief. There was nothing I can do. I'm trapped. What are you going to gain if I don't come back so you lose your whole family? Better losing two children than losing your whole family? You're right. But I can't. <laughs> How can I go back to my father without the lad? I cannot see what will happen to my father. I can't. The Medrash now, however, and here we bring it together, Bezer Hashem, tells us that there's something else going on. And it's really not something else. It's the harmony of what's going on. It's the true story. And I want to remind you the dialogue of the Medrash, and now I think it will become extremely clear. What happens? Yosef asks you, why are you speaking? He says, I'm the guarantor. He says, you're the guarantor. Why didn't you guarantee your other brother? And that's when Yehuda says, let's destroy this whole place. And Chushim comes running from Israel. And then they have this whole exchange, how I'll take out a sword, I'll wrap the sword around you, your neck, I'll open my mouth, and I'll swallow you, I'll fill your mouth with a boulder. You're a liar. Your verdict is one of lies. You're the greatest liar when you sentenced your brother to be sold. I'm going to dye the whole Egypt with the blood of its victims. You're the one who was the expert of dyeing a tunic, a tunic with blood. Now, we all understand that if Yosef is trying to be the prime minister of Egypt, he can't be saying all these things. But here we come across a fascinating theme that exists in Medrash all the time and really exists even in Chumash if you read it well. And I'll remind you, last time, last time we had a class and we spoke about Yaakov wrestling with a man in the middle of the night while he was alone. And the question is, if you're alone, you're not wrestling with anybody else because there's only you there. And of course the answer is that you're wrestling sometimes with yourself. To understand the perspective of Torah and Chazal, you have to understand every person exists in two planes. There is who you are, and there is who you are in my mind. And I can't touch the texture of you, who you are, if I don't first work out the you that is in my mind. Did you understand what I just said? So I'll explain for those who didn't understand. You'll get it. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a very profound idea, a very important idea. I don't know other people. I don't know my wife. I don't know my children. I barely know myself. 
We don't know other people. What we know about other people is our experience of them, the way we tell their story in our minds. We have a story that we tell about people. That story is based on my own experiences. Sometimes, always, we're wearing glasses. When I look at my spouse, or I look at my child, or I look at my friend, or I look at myself, it's always from certain glasses. Sometimes I can only pick up what I'm capable of picking up. Relationships is about opening yourself up to the reality of the other. But you can never open yourself up to the reality of the other if you don't first work through your perception of their reality in your own mind. Now, this is a very humbling process because we often don't realize how stuck we are in the quagmire of our perception of other people. And I'm talking about people that we love, people that we cherish, but we keep on telling stories about them, and those stories are unconscious. It's not like we sit there and say, okay, this is the story I'm telling about my husband, and therefore when he comes home, I was already upset when I heard the key in the door. You just know that you're upset because you know the reality, you know who this person is, you know everything about him, and the moment you hear the key, you already know what to think. It's very humbling to go back to the drawing board and say, maybe I can open myself up to a whole paradigm shift. Now, this has to be done with sensitivity and empathy and with skill and with understanding. I'm not talking about clearly abusive and unbearable, dangerous situations. I'm talking about in the daily interactions between people who are normal and sane and behaving more or less menschlich. And even if they're sometimes not behaving menschlich, but opening ourselves up to the real possibility of, of growth and re, re, self-examination. So there's always, in Torah, there's always two people. Every person exists on two levels. There's who they are outside of me, but there's who they are inside of me. And who they are inside of me in many ways is much more important because that's my entire experience of you. I don't experience you. I experience me. I often share in classes, when you tell a story about somebody else, you know who you're really telling a story about? Yourself. No one is ever telling a story about anybody else. They're always telling a story about themselves. It's not easy to see it. Of course I'm telling a story about her. Of course I'm telling a story about him. What am I making it up? You may not be making up the facts, but the story, the context, the backdrop, the conclusions, the energy, I'm telling a story about myself. I'm telling the story that I'm hearing, that I'm experiencing, that I'm feeling. And it's not about judging anybody. It's just about awareness, acute awareness. Yehuda is having a conversation with the Prime Minister of Egypt. But like in every conversation, there's another conversation going on. The conversation that's going on is a conversation with himself. That conversation may happen on a conscious level. That conversation may happen on a subconscious level. The Chumash always tells you the revealed conversation. Yehuda, the Prime Minister, are talking. The Medrash now says... Let me tell you about another conversation. The other conversation is a conversation Yehuda is having with himself while he's speaking to the prime minister. That conversation may be conscious. It may be subconscious. It's almost irrelevant. But it's a conversation that the Medrash is saying and pointing out because it's only when Yehuda 
identifies the inner conversation when he can actually change the outer conversation. We don't realize how much power we have in influencing others if only I'm ready to take accountability from my inner conversation. And my inner conversation, you're not hearing. Halavai, I should hear my inner conversation. Because if I can hear my inner conversation, I'm way ahead ahead of the game. How many of us could stop, interrupt the static, and allow our antennas to go this way instead of that way, to listen to my inner conversation, rather than to point fingers at you and you and you and say, start listening to me. If you want them to listen to you, someone else has to listen to you. And that's you. We always think, why can't you listen to me? Listen to me. Wait, wait, wait. You're not even listening to yourself. You can't get you to listen to you. You want me to listen to you? (laughs) Why don't you listen to you? You don't want to listen to you. Because what you have to say is very, very deep. I don't want to go there. Only when Yehuda listens to himself can the Prime Minister of Egypt listen to him. The entire conversation between Yehuda and Yosef, the dialogue, is a conversation going on in Yehuda's heart between him and his brother, whom he last saw 22 years ago. That's the conversation he's working through. The Yosef who's answering him is not the person standing outside of him. It's a brother that's inside of him that never left him. You can't cut off your brother from your life. You can't cut off your sister from your life. You can't cut off your mother from your life. You can't cut off your father from your life. You can't cut off your soul from your life. You can't cut off your child from your life. And you can't cut your conscience out of your life. Somebody once said the only recipe for happiness is either you kill your conscience or you clear your conscience. One of the two. Either you kill it, which is impossible, especially if you're Jewish. Good luck. Jews don't know how to do it. Or you clear it. It's only the only option. You can't do anything else because the person in the mirror, the conscience in the mirror, steers back at me. So the Chazal and the Medrash are saying something extremely deep. They are exposing everything Yehuda felt in his conversation. When he told Yosef, I guaranteed this boy. You know what he heard Yosef say back to him? And where were you 22 years ago? When your brother was begging for help and you sold him as a slave, where were you? When Yehuda says, you're being so cruel, this is false, this is unfair. And he hears Yosef telling him, where I'm being cruel, this is a false verdict. And when you sold a brother who was innocent, it was not a false verdict. When Yehuda finds himself in rage and saying, you know what, why don't I just kill this guy? Let me just kill him. I'll take a sword and kill you. And you know what he hears him say? And you think if you kill me, you're going to solve the problem? This sword is around your neck. It's not around my neck. I'm not the one who did this. He's telling this to himself. I can kill you. I can kill the witness. I can run away. But you can't run away from your soul. You can't run away from what you did to your brother. Yehuda says, I'll open my mouth and swallow you. You're a Russia Marusha. He says, you can open your mouth, 
But you know what's going to happen to that mouth? It's going to be filled with a boulder. It's going to remain open. You know what happens when somebody puts a stone into your mouth? You can't say another word. You will remain speechless, not me. You have nothing really to say. You want to swallow me up because you want to get rid of the guilt, the remorse, the pain. You want to make it disappear. You are the one who has nothing to say. Yehuda is telling this to himself. When Yehuda says, the passion of Shechem is burning in me, this is going to be another Shechem. And Yosef inside says, you forgot what happened with Tamar. You saw what a mistake you made then. You took an innocent woman whom you, you caused all this pain. She was righteous and you were ready to have her burn in the stake, burn on the stake alive in the name of righteousness. So I want to ask you, isn't it possible that you made a big mistake in your life? Maybe with your other brother, you also made a mistake like you made with Tamar. This is all his own voice speaking to him. And when he says, let's go destroy this place like Shechem, and his brothers say, Mitzrayim is not Shechem. You'll destroy Mitzrayim. You're destroying the whole world. Meaning, when you destroy Egypt, you're destroying your own brother. You're destroying your own food. You're destroying your own future. It's not Mitzrayim you have to destroy. It's your own inability to be able to reinvent yourself from a place of humility and vulnerability that you have to destroy. And finally... When he says, I'm going to paint and dye the streets of Egypt with the blood of you wicked people. And what does he hear in return? You're going to dye the streets of Egypt with the blood of innocent people? In other words, you're innocent. You're the victim. They are the perpetrators. Really? Who died? Whose blood? At some point. It is so powerful. The Medrash keeps on saying that Yehuda is screaming on top of his lungs. Yehuda, Yosef is never screaming. Why? You know why? Because in the internal conversation, who screams? The subconscious doesn't scream. The subconscious says the truth. I scream to repress it. As a lawyer once told me, he says he learned in law school, when the law is on your side, scream the law. When emotions are on your side, scream emotions. When nothing is on your side, just scream. Just yell. Truth doesn't need to scream. You know when I have to scream? When I need to repress something inside of me. Of course Yehuda is screaming. He's screaming at himself. He's screaming at the voice of Yosef that tugs at the core of his consciousness. That voice that tells him, you want to take care of Binyamin? You want to be a slave for Binyamin? What happened to your other brother who you sold into slavery? What happened? And that's when Yehuda looks at the prime minister of Egypt. And what does he do with all this? He could do one or two things. He could leave in anger, run back to Yaakov, and maybe run away. 
That's one thing he can do. He can go back to Yaakov and watch the grief and say, it's not my fault. He can become a broken or dejected man. He can become depressed for the rest of his life. But you know what he does? He hears all these voices. Everything is there. Everything. He doesn't ignore anything. He looks the prime minister in the eyes. And he says something to himself, which then comes out to the prime minister. Yes, I have made many mistakes. And now I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to become the slave. I sold my brother into slavery, and now I will become the slave instead of his brother, who was accused of thievery, so that he goes back to his father. And it's not just about my guilt. My father's pain, I will not live with knowing that I am the cause of this pain once again. I will remain a slave. There's nothing that you can get me to do to go back without Binyamin. What happens in the next scene? Perik Lamed, Perik Memhe Posek Aleph, V'layochel Yosef Lehis Apak. Now Yosef can't contain himself anymore. He sends out everybody from the room. He starts sobbing. And he tells his brothers those two words, Ani Yosef. Am Yosef ha'oid avichai. Is my father still alive? At this moment, Yosef realizes that authentic transformation has occurred. Yehuda is a different person. His brothers are different people. This family is capable of reconciliation, of unity. Not because there was no pain, not because there were no mistakes, not because there were no tragic errors, but because Yehuda, their leader, had the courage to live up to the name that his mother gave him when he was born, knowing he will need this skill the ability to be able to remain truthful until the last moment. Not perfect, but accountable. Not impeccable, but courageous. Not flawless, but full of the resolve and integrity to start a new chapter in my life and to say, where did I go wrong? I want to start over again. When leadership has to be given to a certain person, it's given to Yehuda. Because leaders make mistakes. It's the difference between managers and leaders. Managers follow rules. Leaders have to lead in situations when there are no rules. They have to write the rules. Chamberlain, 1939. Do you go to war against Hitler? Or do you appease him, delaying the war, but knowing that maybe later there'll be more dead? It turns out Chamberlain thought he was right. He was dead wrong. Churchill was right. 
One example of colossal failure in leadership. Every form of leadership, whether it's a mother or a father, a teacher or an educator, every person is a leader. Leaders who write the rules in situations that are not predictable. You know that with some children, the rules are clear. You could be a manager. (laughs) But with some children, there's no rules. What do you do with this girl of yours, with this 16-year-old girl? There's no rules. You go to every principal and therapist in the world. Say to Hillam, there's no rules. And we make mistakes. We make mistakes because of our own traumas, because of our own shortcomings, because of our own insecurities, because of our own egos, because of our own issues. Leaders make mistakes. Yosef will remain the paradigm of that beautiful child who just glows in every situation. The oil rises to the top. And Yehuda becomes a living example of that person who fails, who stumbles, but who never ever gets stuck in their mistakes, covers up, and allows themselves to remain stuck in the mud of their errors due to arrogance, smugness, superficiality, and stupidity. He will not do that. Indeed, if you look in Jewish history, it's quite fascinating what happens to Yosef's descendants when they fall and what happens to Yehuda's descendants when they fall. Very different experience. When I look so beautiful, when I'm gorgeous, what happens when I fall? I can't admit that my face is all scratched up. It's just too embarrassing. So what do I do? I say there's no scratch. You think there's a scratch. There's no scratch. It's hard for me to live with a scratch on my face. It's hard for me to live with a stain. It's hard for me to live with a wound. I deny my wounds because I need to be beautiful. As long as you don't fail, you're great. But when you fail, you're Ravim Benavot was a descendant of Yosef. The Gemara says he was one of the greatest giants of his generation. When he fell, God said, Chazorbach, Sanhedrin 103, Chazorbach, I'm going to walk with you and David and Ganeiden. No, 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 no. If David is going first, I don't follow. What happened? I can't deal with being wounded. It's too judgmental for me. It's too difficult. I can't look you in the eyes and say, I'm vulnerable. Here I am. This is who I am. I'm a small person. I'm not a small person. My whole life I was a great person. How can I tell myself I'm just a little petty person? So what do I do? I dig my head further into the sand and I become even a smaller person. You ever see when leaders make mistakes and then they cover up those mistakes and then they have to cover up the cover up and you feel bad for them. All they had to do was stand up and say, I'm a human being. I'm small. I have a lot of issues. But how can I do that? I'm, you know who. <laughs> you know who I am. Look at my resume. Look at my reputation. What is everybody going to say? Everybody knows genius. <laughs> you're the only one who doesn't know that you're scratched up all over the place. Take Arnica and say, I'm sorry. Shoal HaMelech comes from Binyamin, Sadik Tachtan. Shmuel Hanavi comes to him and says, what happened? Hashem told you to go to Amalek and do what you have to do with Amalek. 
And what did Shaul do? Shaul gave a beautiful excuse. I wanted to bring offerings. Hakimoisi es dvar Hashem. I did what God said. I did what God said. Shaul said, Toiv shmoya, Shmuel said, Toiv shmoya, Mizevach toiv, Lahakshiv Michaelavelim, better to listen than to bring all of your offerings from Amalek's animals. And he says, Yeah, but the people pressured me. What do you want from me? I'm just their leader. I have to follow the people. And what happened? He lost his kingship. David HaMelech also did something that was very, very challenging morally, at least relative to his level. And when Nasan Hanavi confronted him about the story of Bathsheba, you know what David's response was? One word. Chotosi. I sinned. What's the difference? Shoal was demoted. David remained a king. Chotosi. The Gemara says in Yuma 22, Yuma Chavbeis, why did Shoal's kingship not last and David's kingship last? The Gemara says something unbelievably powerful. Kol Parnas, Alat Sibur, She'en Loi Kupur Sher Shrotzim Tluya Ma'achayrav. A leader who doesn't have a box filled with dead rodents suspended from his back can't be a leader. Why? Because at every point there has to be a box of dead insects. That's rats, mice, cockroaches. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but that's what he's saying. Hanging. Why? So if he becomes arrogant, you could tell him, why don't you look back and see what's in back of you? So the Gemara says, Shoal didn't have a kupur shal shratzim. He had no, what we call today, dead skeletons in the closet. When you looked at Shoal, he was krem dala krem. Valedictorian throughout. Perfect, impeccable, ain't boy doifi. Says he was like one year old when he became a king. Chazal said, one year old? He was as pure as a one year old. Innocence. Isn't that the greatest quality? Yes. Until you make a mistake. And my purity and my sense of perfection doesn't allow me the gift of absolute vulnerability and surrender. And leadership requires that above everything else. Yehuda. David HaMelech. He never grow up, grew up with perfection. When David was in third grade, they bullied him. You know what they said? Who's your grandmother? Rus. She's Jewish? From third grade. He heard that he's not sure. He's a yid nishka. Imagine. Not bullied because of his weight. Not bullied because of another challenge. Bullied. He may not even be Jewish. Great. Great for self-confidence. His brothers thought... His father thought he was a mamzer. He was an illegitimate child. My brothers thought I was a mamzer. A whole story in the Medrash, it's not for now. But David's family thought he was an illegitimate child. How was that growing up? Talk about a chip on your shoulder? Now that can result in two things. Either you become a traumatized person, insecure for life, or... You become a person who knows how to celebrate vulnerability. And that's the difference between a mediocre life and a great life. The person who knows how to celebrate vulnerability, how to celebrate their humanity with authenticity, with purity, with integrity, 
it changes everything. It's the moment Yosef was waiting for to see that his family could be reunited. And it's the moment that Yehuda is given the gift of true leadership for eternity. Have a wonderful week. Well, that's the uniqueness of Yehuda. The Balchuva represents every person who struggles and fails and learns from his mistakes or from her mistakes. And struggles means on every level. There's the struggle of of mistakes, of sins, of transgressions, of callousness. And then there's the struggles that comes from a personality disorder, from a trauma, from a deep pain, from a sense of suffering, from deep insecurity, maybe from a mental challenge that I'm having. And as a result of that, my life has been dyed by blood. My life has been affected by the mistakes that I made. Yes, my life has been tainted and colored by blood. Maybe my own blood. Maybe the blood of others. You know, the Gemara says when you, you embarrass somebody, it's a form of, of, of death. Azil sumke right? The, the, the blood rushes out of their face. I sometimes taint my life with blood, with my own blood or with somebody else's blood. That's what Yehuda is telling himself. You're accused, you're saying that you're going to die the Egyptian roads with the blood of the victims? Who died his brother's shirt with his blood? That's the voice I tell myself. It was my, my insensitivity, my ignorance, my stupidity, my arrogance, my, my insecurity, my trauma. It's not about judging myself. I can have empathy for my, my shortcomings, but the one condition is, am I ready to reinvent myself? Am I ready to learn from my mistakes? Am I ready to open myself up to broader horizons, to be able to see what I did to my father? Am I ready to say these words? You know, let's apply it to our own lives. We all want dveikas in Hashem. We all want to be one with Hashem. We want to go back to our father. But there's so many children who are trapped as slaves. How can I go to Hashem? The Hashem Ishmael says that on Shabbos, every Jew goes back to his father. Shabbos is the day of unity with Hashem. When I'm going to come back to Hashem, Hashem is going to want to know, where is the child? You can't run away from the children who are struggling and say, I want to be one with Hashem. How can I go back to my father? Without the child. Their souls are one. Their souls are integrated. It's not about my pain or my sin. It's the pain of my father who lost his child. That moment, that realization, the moment when Yehuda can say those words, when he has that realization and that transformation, that changes everything. I know. Yaakov, Esav, yeah. <laughs> ah, it's a good question. Why does he say, He keeps on 14 times his father. No, now he no, now he tells him. I think so. There's different interpretations. I think the simplest interpretation is Ha'oid Avichai was a rhetorical question. Is it possible that my father is alive after all of this? After all the suffering he described, and it's important to say it. Why? Because his next his next instruction to them is Maru, rush, hurry up, go to my father and bring him back. Don't wait. Why? 
because it's a very, it's a vulnerable situation. Is he really alive? You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Pleasure to have you. Yes. Next week there's a class by Ezer Hashem Blinader. And they say that he was just a crazy person. Like those words, I don't buy. When people attribute uh, murder, attempted murder, to mental illness, it doesn't make sense to me. There are many people I know who are schizophrenic, who are autistic, who have psychosis, who are Asperger's, and who have a bunch of men, bipolar. They don't murder anybody. Because mentally ill people have a moral education. We all know autistic children. They're the sweetest kids in the world. They don't murder people. Why? Because they grow up in homes of moral values where it's taught that human life is sacred and dignified. We all know schizophrenic people and bipolar people. They're some of the sweetest people in the world because they grew up in homes with a real moral education. Mental illness is a very, very poor excuse and a dangerous excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Schizophrenic, schizophrenic. Thank you for coming. It's a poor excuse. It's ridiculous. It takes away the responsibility from education, from homes, from schools, from parents. We all know mentally ill people. They don't kill anybody. Huh? What? Yeah, the people with mental challenges receive a very powerful education and they're very sensitive people. Even if they have serious challenges. Right here, Rabbi Rottenberg is down the block, next door of the show. 47 for Shai. 47. Yeah. Yeah. I went to his house last night because he had a Zeischanek uh, uh, Tish. Yeah. Yeah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.